Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be from Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Grace DC and friends. My name's Glenn Hoberg, one of the pastors at Grace Downtown, and I'm delighted to be with you this morning. As Women's History Month is being recognized around the world, there are two women worthy of recognition from the standpoint of church history, both of them African. One of them, named Perpetua, was a noble woman, a new wife and a new mother, and the second, Felicity, her servant, both martyred for their faith in Rome in the third century. Now we know about their account in part because of Perpetua's diary. In it she writes, It was only a short time later that we were thrown into the dungeon. I was terrified because I have never experienced such gloomy darkness before. The heat was stifling due to the overcrowded conditions, and the soldiers kept harassing me so I would pay them a bribe. Worst of all, I was tortured by worry for my baby the whole time I was there. Added to this stress, Perpetua had the pleas of her father, who was asking her to renounce her faith. He threw himself at her feet and said, have pity on my gray hairs, daughter. Think of your brothers, your mother, your son. Don't be so stubborn or you're going to destroy us all. She wrote, my father's suffering hurt me as if I myself had been beaten. The authorities took advantage of this and said, spare your father, spare your son. The prison guards would taunt her, you're suffering now. How will you handle it when we toss you to the beasts? Now what's enlightening about this account isn't so much the details about their suffering in the Colosseum. We have lots of historical records of that. But rather the insight into the emotional cost that she bore. The heart of faith that she had. And in this way, she emulates her Savior, Jesus Christ. It has been said, before surrendering his life on a hill called Golgotha, 
Jesus surrendered his will in a garden called Gethsemane. It was really the first payment Jesus made of his ransom for sinners. And again, it shows us the insight of the heart of faith, two things in particular, the transparency of faith and the trusting of faith. So let's look at those two things together. First of all, the transparency of faith. Now, if you're writing a legend of a hero, or you're crafting together a story of a candidate that you hope will appeal to voters, you're going to likely leave out the part where the hero or leader experiences an emotional breakdown. That will be part of the account you choose to hide. And yet you find that the Bible doesn't do that. And it's actually consistent all the way through. You find David uh, saying to the Lord, uh, I'm downcast and depressed. You have Elijah saying, I'm so fearful I want to die. You have Naomi complaining, uh, change my name to bitter because you've made my life that way. Such transparency of heart and emotion. And as they do these things, and as we see them in Scripture, it reminds us what it means to be human. Uh, Jesus' deity didn't cancel out his humanity, and our humanity doesn't cancel out our godliness. And yet it's in stark contrast to what we often see. Right before this passage, we find the Apostle Peter boasting of his strength of love, but it's a false boast because he crumbles. In contrast to that, we find Jesus being so transparently weak, yet in the end he arises in faithful strength. But what an object lesson it was for them to see. Here we have Jesus' three closest disciples. They had seen him at his most powerful. They had seen him quiet seas raise someone from the dead, be transfigured into glorious light. And yet now he's coming apart emotionally. We're told as they were walking, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It would be similar to using the language of Jesus was having a panic attack. He was going into shock. He was losing his composure. And then we're told, he said to the disciples, I'm overwhelmed with grief. I'm despairing to the point of death. And then as he walks away from them in the distance, they would have seen him stagger and stumble and fall to the ground. And then loud cries and groans out to God. He would then return to them soaked through with sweat. Can you imagine the panic and confusion they felt? in the midst of this crisis, then it wouldn't be till later that they would understand what the source of this distress was. Sometimes the question is raised, well, there have been lots of people that faced their death heroically. Why didn't Jesus? Well, it wasn't because Jesus feared pain or death or the unknown. It was actually he came into the full knowledge of what lied ahead of him, and that is the wrath of God. Now, at this moment, uh, the modern skeptic in us rises up and we feel both uh, disdain and disgust for this idea of wrath. Isn't it cruel and primitive? But maybe an entry point for us is the premium we place on the value of justice. Now, there are different forms of justice, right? Procedural justice, how someone is treated through the legal system. Distributive justice, who gets what? Restorative justice, how we make wrongs right. 
But then there's also retributive justice, punishment for wrongdoing. Most of us would agree that uh, you can't be a just person and turn a blind eye to things like corruption, assault, abuse, more so to be passionate advocates for justice yet minimize our own sins and wrongdoing is hypocritical. Well, likewise with God, what kind of judge would God be if he didn't bring retributive justice? God, who like no one advocates for the poor, the alien, the orphan, for him not to judge sin would make him hypocritical. But what does this have to do with Jesus? Doesn't the New Testament testify that he had no guilt or sin? What well, has everything to do with it? The purpose for which he came as a sin bearer to step in our judgment, but more so it gives us insight to his emotional state. You know, think for a second of yourself standing in the light of justice between, uh, before God and uh, you know, the throng of angels where every selfish desire you've ever had, every unkind word, every mean thought, every unjust deed was brought into light. I don't know about you, but that thought shakes me to my core. But imagine if that judgment didn't concern one person's sin, but a world of sin. This is what Jesus is seeing. This is what Jesus is coming to terms with. How? Well, Jesus, of course, had always known his destiny was to be a ransom for sinner and dies. He predicted it. He taught about it. But the difference now is he's being shown it. One theologian has said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was given a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the furnace of God's wrath into which he would be cast. What threw Jesus into a state of shock that took his legs out from under him, that made him quake, was the transparency of the furnace that lay before him. Or to use the biblical language, he was given a sip of the wrath of God. That cup which makes uh, men staggering crazed. But why would God need to show him that? Many times we try to protect people from seeing the worst that they're going to face. We consider it merciful. But before we get to that, I don't want us to pass by what really is a gracious invitation in the uh, demonstration that Jesus gives us. Uh, my wife and I just finished the most recent season of the show The Crown, which is a portrayal of the Queen of England and those generations. And in it, if you're familiar with it, the, the Queen is portrayed as someone who's unable to deal with messy feelings. As her children come to her, adult children with troubled marriages or brokenness or whatever it would be, she basically just says, well, if you just pull yourself together, everything will work out. In uh, one of the powerful scenes in the last episode of the season, the king says to Diana, Princess Diana, you know, there is one oxygen we breathe. There is one essence of duty we all have, and it's the queen. Now, there's a spiritual version of this in the church and in the Christian faith, and that is where Christians begin to believe their call is basically to keep it together where the message they hear is you, you just need to focus on God 
and keep your feelings at bay. They're a distraction. And you need to just walk ahead. The problem is that the Son of God doesn't fit that profile, does he? His obedience and his holiness unleashes an emotional torrent. And notice there's no voice from heaven or an angel messenger that says, pull yourself together, come on. And in it we learn something about prayer. In the Gospel of Mark, all the prayers of Jesus are said in times of crisis and decision. And of course, in the Gospels, we're given the, the garden prayer in three of the uh, Gospels. Now, if we only had the Gospel of Mark and just these prayers, we might even conclude that it's natural to express weakness before God in prayer. In fact, it's not only natural, it's holy to be this transparent before God. The book of Hebrews, which was likely referring to this prayer in the garden, said of Jesus, while on earth he prayed prayers with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverence. Did you hear that? An emotional breakdown, but reverence. It might be for some of us the most reverent and holy thing we could do is to lose it before God and our friends to reverently fall apart. And in it, we might find a new freedom in prayer. Jesus knew well the cup he had to drink. Again, he taught about it. That was the express reason he came. But do you notice he still understands it's okay to make his feelings and requests known because Jesus' feelings matter to the Father. I've learned in my own uh, experience of personal counseling, not counseling other people, receiving counseling, that there is something to the dignity of feelings. I remember a counselor saying to me, um, yeah, you know, sure, there's feelings that are sinful. We acknowledge that and wrong and not good feelings, but I, I just want to give dignity for a moment to the feeling itself. And as that happens, some surprising things develop. <laughs> You actually go far deeper into what's going on in the soul. As the Proverbs say, the soul is deep water. But many times in our relationships, right, we do the opposite. Our goal is to dismiss people's feelings quickly. It's part of our strategy. It's to name them as sinful, to say they're illegitimate. Could we as a community begin to model something different? This example we have of Jesus, where we come before God with our requests and our feelings, and we feel free. But that moves us to our second and last point, trusting the heart of faith. I mentioned before the question, why did Jesus need to see what was ahead of him? Why didn't God shield him? Because he had to choose to save us. Jesus had to know where he was going and what he would suffer. He had to stare wide-eyed into the cost and say, Yes, I will. For many of us, one of our greatest nightmares is that people would really know the worst about us. <laughs> Some secret that we have or, you know, we're quote-unquote high maintenance. Afraid that they would actually go the opposite direction. And it's not an unfounded fear. Many of us in relationships have felt that. Someone withdrawing in that time. 
Some of us perhaps in committed relationships, marriages, where the relationship ends and we feel like we're just naked in our vulnerability. Someone says, I'm done. But consider this. The Son of God looks fully and completely into your life into your secret life, and he rushes into the furnace. He jumps into the, you know, the, the storm's waves of the sea. But we might ask, well, wasn't there hesitation? Didn't three times he say, let this cup be removed from me? The hesitation wasn't any reluctance to win us. It was rather to lose his father. We find that just a little bit later when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There we see his real fear. You see, Jesus' joy in his life was the Father's delight in him, was their intimacy. And as he steps into the role of a sinner, even though he's sinless, he knows that's going to change, that he will become the condemned and yet the strength of his relationship with the Father is the very thing that enables him to go into those flames for us and to receive a no when he arises. And in this we're given an assurance, but also an exhortation. Because Jesus went into those flames, because Jesus entered into that furnace, you and I stare not at a furnace, but rather we look at a waterfall of living water. We don't look at a hangman's gallows. We look at a throne of grace. We're not drinking a cup of wrath, but rather 30 gallons of salvation. Jesus has given us, Jesus has given believers his relationship to the Father. Us being loved with the same love that the Father loved the Son. And there again we get confidence in prayer. You see, Jesus had the ability to hear a no in prayer, but still believed he was loved. How do you handle no's in prayer? You see, if the foundation of your relationship with God is basically him giving you yeses to prayers, you won't be able to handle that moment. But if the deep confidence of your relationship with God is his Jesus-like love for you, you'll be able to get up from your knees hearing a no, yet at the same time feeling deeply loved. But then there's one other thing we have to pay be mindful of. Jesus didn't just turn on this trust in the garden. This was really the climax of decades of his intimacy with God, the fruit of a long, faithful relationship with God. There's an old hymn in the garden, maybe some of you know it, where it says, uh, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am of his own. Jesus had lots of walks in that garden before he faced this garden. And the same is true for you and I. Uh, you and I need to have been walking in that garden where we feel God near and we believe I am his own. It will determine how you face the garden of night, the garden where God shows you a little bit of a furnace in flames. But at this point, we can come back around to Perpetua in response to the uh, pleading of her father or the rank conditions of the prison or of the jeers of the, the soldiers. 
She responded by saying, right now I must endure what I am suffering. But on that day, there will be someone inside of me to bear the pain on my behalf, since I'll be suffering for him. In that, you see both a transparency of faith, but a trust in faith. Dear friends, may it be so with us. Would you pray with me? God, uh, we're so grateful that you've included accounts like this in Scripture. Uh, we could never come up with this on our own. And we confess to you that uh, many times we're more reluctant to uh, come to terms with Jesus' humanity than we are his deity. But in it, there's such a grace. There's such an invitation for us. Would you set us free? We thank you for our Lord and Savior, who not only went into the furnace, but emerged through the grave and sits with you now praying for us. In Christ's name, amen.